0: elderly couple lay in bed one night after decades of marriage and the wife just knew in her mind that she wasn't satisfied with the distance that had grown between them over the years and so she reminded her husband as they lay there she said when we were young you used to hold my hand all the time and he hesitated for a while and then eventually he kind of snaked his hand <laughs> across the bed and reluctantly grabbed hers and Yet, that wasn't enough, and she looked at him, and she said, you know, when we were young, you used to cuddle up right next to me all the time. He hesitated a little longer this time, and kind of groaned, and was like, fine, and he rolled over and moved a little closer and cradled her next to him, and yet again, she she brought it up. She goes, you know, when we were young, you used to nibble on my ear, and it made me feel so good. And now came a loud sigh, and the husband threw back the covers, and he bolted out of bed, and the wife was somewhat hurt, and she said, where are you going? And he responded, he said, if you want me to nibble on your ear, you're going to have to let me go get my teeth first. <laughs> you ever notice that the end sometimes doesn't look like the beginning? Uh, if you If you have me as a friend on Facebook this week, you saw I did the Valentine's Day thing where... You post a picture of when you met your wife, and our engagement picture was on there, and if you saw that picture, you noticed that the end doesn't always look like the beginning, right? (laughs) Like I had somebody ask, who ate your husband? Um, That was me. And uh, the end doesn't always look like the beginning, but sometimes, have you noticed in life that you have to get to the end to better understand the beginning? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 for almost the whole morning. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says this at the very end of the chapter. At the very end of the chapter, in verses 31 through 32, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this. He says this mystery, this this idea of marriage, he said it is profound Because I am saying that it refers to Jesus and the church. Now this morning I want to suggest to you that as we go back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, we have to understand what Paul says at the end to more fully understand the beginning. Paul will do this deep teaching on what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. He will go in, in verse 22, to talk about a passage that we talk about a lot in the church. It's probably the primary passage about marriage, where Paul talks about husbands leading their wives and wives submitting to their husbands and what marriage is supposed to look like. But we always miss what Paul tags on at the end. At the end of this teaching, Paul says what I'm really talking about, the bigger picture in this, is the relationship between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The church defined as the bride of Christ. And it made me think about when I proposed to my wife over 20 years ago, it didn't go exactly as I had planned. I had this really cool thing planned out, and we were walking along, and I was trying to get up the nerve to ask, and so I'm rambling, which is what I usually do when I get nervous. If you've been here on Sunday morning, you figured that out already. And we're going around the circle, and she interrupts me, and I'm like, could you just please shut up? And that prepared her for the next 20 years of marriage. And uh, we got down, and finally we got to the place. I got down on one knee. I put the ring on the wrong hand. And yet she still said yes in the midst of all of that. And it always makes me wonder, why would a woman like that want to marry a guy like this? And as I began to prep for this message this morning, that kind of became the reoccurring theme in my mind. Why would a groom like Jesus, the perfect son of God, want to be in relationship with a bride that looks like us. And so this morning, we're going to go back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at this idea of why Jesus would want to marry us. And as we do that, it's going to show us who Jesus has called us to be in light of what he's done for us. And, And the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus married the church to cleanse us from sin. Jesus married us to cleanse us from our sin and because of that we are called as the bride of Christ to be pure. We're going to jump around in chapter 5, but the first 4 verses says be imitators of God. As beloved children, be imitators of him. Walk in love as Jesus has loved us. And as he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We're to be the same thing. He says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. If you jump over to verse 8, Paul says, At one time you were darkness. Not you were in darkness. He said, At one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse 11, Paul says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them verse 15 paul says look carefully how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of your time because the days are evil paul says that because you and i have come to christ because we have entered into relationship with jesus impurity in any form should not even be named among us as god's people Paul essentially reminds us in this passage that we have left darkness to be married to light, to be joined together. And as the bride of Christ, we've we've already been made clean, not because of what we've done, not because of how we live, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And as that is true, then as the bride of Christ, we're to live in a way that shows that that has happened. And we have to remember that when we sin, when we do things that are apart from God, it doesn't just reflect on us, it reflects on the person that we're in relationship with. It reflects on Jesus. Paul tells us that as followers of Christ, as someone who is married to Jesus, the church is called to be shaped by Christ, not by the culture. And I think too often, as followers of Jesus, we ask the wrong question in the church. Too often, as followers of Jesus, we ask that question of, how far can I go and still be okay with God, right? Like th- That's what we ask most of the time. Is like, what's the line so I know what I can get up to and what I can't cross? How far can I go? How-, how little do I have to love people and yet still be okay with Jesus? How far can I go in this area of life and dance along the lines of sin but not cross the line? And that's the question we ask. And instead, as followers of Jesus, as someone who's in relationship with Jesus... We should be asking, what can I do that will keep me as close to my spouse as possible? I mean, mean, think about this. If we're talking about marriage, think about having that same conversation with your spouse. Like, can you imagine if, let's say the night after I got married, we'd had this wedding, we'd committed our life to each other, and I sat down with Megan, my wife, and I said, honey, I love you so much. I'm so excited to spend the rest of my life with you, but I thought it would be good, maybe now that we're married, if if we worked out a few of the details on how far I can go with other women. Like, I know that we're married, but I kind of just want to get the details down so I know, like, what's too far and and what I'm allowed to do. Like, is it okay if I sleep with other women? Is that okay? And and if not that, well, can I I kiss other women? Or or maybe just dating, would that be okay? Now, 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 honey, I'm assuming you're not going to mind a few affairs now and then. But, but how many would be too many for you? Are we talking five? Or are we talking ten? I, I just want to know what the line is so that I know I won't cross it. It's ridiculous, right? <laughs> if you don't think it's ridiculous, I, I would like to visit with you after church. Your spouse would like me to do that too. <laughs> but it's crazy, right? Like we hear that and go, that's the dumbest illustration ever. But isn't that what we do to our groom Jesus all the time? Isn't that what you and I are really doing when we ask Jesus, what can I get away with? (laughs) See, I, I think that question shows that I don't fully understand what it means to be married to Jesus. Like if I would ask that question of my wife, it would be glaringly obvious that I have no clue what marriage is meant to be, Right? I would have no clue what I have already committed to. And when we ask that question of Jesus as the church, it illustrates that you and I, we have no clue what it means to be married to him. See, Jesus, when he married us, he cleansed us from all sin. And as his bride, we're called to live a life that illustrates that. To live in a way that makes us look like the spouse that we married. In Colossians 1, Paul said that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred to us the kingdom of the beloved son. And it's in Jesus that you and I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul goes on in verses 22 through 24. And we're going to read this now. Understand and be reminded that we're looking at this under the umbrella of the end of the chapter. So what Paul is really talking about here, he is talking about marriage, he's certainly talking about how we should live as husbands and wives on earth, but Paul at the end says this is a part of a bigger picture of the relationship between the church, the bride, and Jesus, the groom. This is what he says, verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Jesus is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Jesus, wives should also submit to everything to their husbands. And Paul reminds us in this teaching, as we look at it under the umbrella of the relationship between the church and Jesus, that Jesus married you and me to make us holy and devoted to God. Now that word holy really means set apart. And so what Paul says is that we are married to Jesus Jesus married us so that we could be set apart and devoted to him. And because that's true, we're called as the bride of Christ to be committed to Jesus. Committed and set apart to him. That's why when we get married, we use that phrase, we say, till death do us part, right? Like we don't say, I'll commit to you until a couple weeks from now, or until the money runs out, or until you stop looking so good. Thank God that wasn't what we said at our wedding. Uh, I'd be divorced already. Because of me, not my wife. That came out wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but that's why we say it, right? Till death do us part. When we say that, what we're doing is we're declaring that I am choosing to be set apart, that's what holy means, and that I'm going to be completely devoted to another person and that person alone. And Jesus came to join in relationship with us, to make us holy, to set us apart so that we would live devoted and committed to him. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, preparing our minds for action, and because we're being sober-minded, we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, we're to be obedient children, not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, But as Jesus who called us is holy, is set apart, we the church are also to be holy, set apart in all of our conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Jesus, if you call on God as Father, who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, that you were bought, that you were purchased from the futile ways that you inherited from the people who came before you. You were bought, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb, without blemish or spot. Peter reminds us that it cost Jesus his life to enter into relationship with us and set us apart. That Jesus had to die so we could be in relationship with him and with God the Father. That Jesus married us, Jesus died so that you and I could be set apart and devoted to him. And that means that the church is supposed to be committed to Jesus, committed to living like Jesus, committing to loving like Jesus. It don't matter what the consequences are. That's why Jesus entered into relationship with us. Jesus married us also to present us on the last day without stain of sin. Paul tells us that Jesus married us, he entered into relationship with us, so you and I, there will be a day when Jesus returns and we will be presented before God without stain or blemish. And what that means is he's calling the bride of Christ to be submitted and surrendered to Jesus. That it, because Jesus entered into a relationship with us so that we could be presented before God and spend eternity with him without stain of sin, that should lead us as the bride of Christ to be fully submitted and surrendered to him. But that's hard, isn't it? Like I think we wrestle with that word submission in any context in our culture today. We wrestle with that word surrender in our context and culture in any avenue today. And it reminds me, Emerson Egrich uh, wrote a great book called Love and Respect. A lot of you have probably read this on marriage. And he tells the story of a time that they were giving a conference on the love and respect stuff. And he said they got to the question and answer time after they had had a section talking about this idea of a husband leading his wife and a wife submitting to the authority of her husband and all those things and what that means. And he said, I always remembered that there was a, a, an eager young wife. They were freshly married and she raised her hand and she says, I totally get this. Like, I really want my husband to be the head of our home. I, I just trust him so much and, and I want him to be the leader. I'm so glad that I married him. I just want to make sure that he makes decisions that keep exactly in line with what I want. And I thought, you know, that's how I surrender to God. Maybe just me, but that's how I surrender to God most of the time. That, that I come to God and say, God, I, I, want, I want you to call the shots. God, I want to surrender to your leadership because I really believe that, that you know better than me. God, I want to partner with you, and God, I want you to, to call the shots. I want you to be in charge of my life. I just want to make sure you're going to make all the decisions exactly in line with what I want. And that's how we often submit or surrender to God. I want him to call the shots as long as it fits in line with what I think my life should look like. And I think one of the bigger struggles that we face in the church is that we have no problem surrendering to Jesus as Savior. Right? Like we all get that. We all submit and surrender to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have my life so that I can spend eternity with you. Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. we got no problem doing that. But I know I have a really hard time surrendering and submitting to Jesus as Lord and leader. I'm okay with Jesus controlling my eternity. That sounds real good to me. Boy, do I struggle with Jesus controlling my everyday life until then. And yet, Paul tells us in this beautiful picture of marriage between the church, the bride, and Jesus, the groom, that we have to submit to him because we trust that he knows best. That doesn't mean we don't have a say in what goes on. It doesn't mean that we don't have choice. It doesn't mean that we don't have free will. What it means is that we trust that Jesus is smarter than we are. We trust that even when we don't fully understand, Jesus does. And that's hard. That is a hard life to live. But that's what Paul talked about. We've read this verse, I think, the last four weeks. Maybe God's trying to tell me something, and you're just along for the ride. But I keep coming back to this idea in Galatians 2, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Jesus. I've been killed. It's no longer I who live. I don't even live anymore But it's Jesus who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's no longer my life, it's Jesus' life. And we started this whole thing this morning by asking this question, which I think is appropriate. Why would Jesus want to marry someone that looks like the church? Why would the perfect spotless lamb, why would the perfect son of God want to commit to an eternal relationship with a church that is fallen and sinful and doesn't even recognize him all the time? Why would someone like Jesus want to be married to someone like me? But I think as we walk through this, there's another question that we have to ask, even though it kind of feels inappropriate. Like, the reality is a lot of us are thinking this this morning. We don't want to say it out loud, but we have to ask the question, why would we, the church, commit to a life that Jesus calls us to as his bride? If Jesus is really asking me to be set apart to live a pure life unstained by sin. If Jesus is really asking me to commit to Him and to surrender to Him and to submit to Him in every avenue and every area of my life, we have to ask the question why would I do that? What would make me make that kind of eternal commitment to Jesus today? Well, Paul goes on, and in verses 25 through 30, <clears throat> this is what he says. He says, husbands, now remember, that's Jesus. Love your wives, that's the church. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus did that so that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. Don't miss that. He does that because we are members of his body, which we're going to talk about next week. And now we get back from the beginning to the end. And Paul says, a man will leave his father and mother and he'll hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And that's what marriage on this earth is supposed to be like. He says, but this mystery of marriage is more profound than you think. He says, because what I'm really saying is that this is referring to Jesus the groom and the church the bride. And we get back to the end from the beginning. And we learn that a bride... Commits and does all these things because of the love and sacrifice of the groom. Why would the church, the bride of Christ, commit to a life that is fully surrendered to him? Because of the love and the sacrifice that Jesus has already shown to us. Jesus is the perfect groom. Church, if you understand nothing else this morning, please don't miss this. That Jesus is the spotless husband Jesus is the groom whose love will never leave, will never forsake you, will never abandon you, will never wane. It is not dependent on how you live or what you've done. Jesus's love is consistent and it is unconditional, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Jesus gave everything so he could be in relationship with you and me. Paul tells us that Jesus' love for the church, it sanctifies us. It makes us better people. Jesus' love for the church, Paul says, cleanses us. It gets rid of all the things in our life that were never supposed to be there to begin with. And Paul tells us that Jesus' love one day will present sinful, dirty people like you and me before God and we will be without spot or blemish or wrinkle. There will be nothing on our record because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross. And we, the church, the bride of Christ, we have a bridegroom whose love is perfect. His love is sacrificial. Jesus walked the hill of Calvary beaten, bloodied. Within an inch of his life, he had his hands nailed to a cross, his feet nailed to a cross. He was hung there, and he died one of the most painful deaths in the history of the world. And he did it because of his love for you and me and nothing else. Jesus' love is sacrificial. Jesus' love for you and me is sanctifying. It makes us who you, we were always created to be. And church, can I tell you, Jesus' love? it is satisfying. It meets every need you have ever thought you had. Jesus is the perfect groom. And because of his love and his sacrifice, it's easy to say, Jesus, all I have is yours. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, it's my favorite description of Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That by Jesus, everything we see was created. In heaven and in earth, things that we can see, things that we can't see, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, everything holds together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In everything, Jesus is preeminent. For in Jesus... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, Jesus reconciles all things by his blood on the cross. Church, we need to understand this morning, as the bride of Christ, that we have a groom whose love is beyond description. It reminds me of a story. Evie Hill, if you've ever heard of Evie Hill, was an incredibly dynamic African American preacher in the inner city of Los Angeles in the late 1900s. And he, he was a very key person during what was called the Watts Riots. And the story goes Evie tells of a time that he was speaking truth and love to both sides of an equation during that time. And as a result of that, his life was pretty much threatened on a daily basis. And one day he said he received a credible report that a group was plotting to put a bomb in his car. And he said the next morning he woke up and he noticed that his wife wasn't laying next to him in bed. And so he got up and went into another part of his house and she wasn't there and he called for her and he couldn't find her. And he began to panic a little bit when she didn't respond. And then all of a sudden he noticed that the car was gone. And a few minutes later he said his wife pulled into the driveway. He went out mad as all get out, demanding, why would you get in the car when you know what we've been told? Why would you get in the car when you know there's a threat to our life, specifically with this? And Evie said this is what his wife told him. She said, I just got to thinking that this community, man, this community needs you more than it needs me. And if they're going to rig the car to be bombed, I wanted to make sure that I was in it and not you. And Pastor Evie Hill said that day, he said, I always knew that my wife loved me. He said, but that day I fully understood what love was supposed to be about. Church, that's who our groom is today. Jesus is the groom who chose to take the punishment that was meant for us. That's what a marriage between Jesus and the church looks like. That we are married to a groom who chose to take the punishment for us. But here's the deal, church. That's the bride that Jesus calls us to be. That's why Jesus in John 15 said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And so this morning, as we put a bow on this, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen, to Revelation 19. See, you see, the deal is that this marriage relationship that we talk about on earth between a husband and a wife, Paul reminds us this morning that it's just a picture of the marriage that's supposed to be between Christ and the church, the bride of Christ. But here's the deal. What we've talked about this morning, this relationship between us and Jesus here on earth, it is a small glimmer of what will come when Jesus the groom returns for his bride. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, John says, "...I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder." crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice, let us give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said this to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These words are the true words of God. In chapter 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death will be no more. There will be no mourning. No crying. No pain anymore. For the old things of life will have passed away. And he who was sitting on the throne said. Behold I am making all things new. Write this down for it is trustworthy and true. In Paul's day when it was time for a man and a woman to marry, what would traditionally happen is both fathers would come together to negotiate a bride price. They would recognize that the bride would be a precious loss to their family. So they would take a cup of wine and the groom would drink from it, and he would offer it to the woman symbolically saying that he wanted to make a covenant with her. And he would be willing to give his life for her if needed. And the woman would seal that engagement by drinking from the same glass and then the father and the son would travel home after the meal to construct a home for his future wife. And the bride would have to wait. She would have to wait for the bridegroom to come back and get her soon. After the bridegroom and his father would leave, the next step of the process would, begin, would be to begin building a place for them to live. And according to the custom of that culture, the bridegroom didn't go out, and he, he wouldn't go look for a new plot of land. Rather, he would build on the end of his father's house. New homes were built into the existing home that was already occupied by family. The father would supervise the construction of the addition on the home, and days would turn into weeks as the bridegroom would work tirelessly on the new dwelling place for his bride. Now, periodically, he would approach his father with a question, Dad, is it ready? Father, is it time? And the father would say, No, son, not yet. And in the meantime, the bride would be at her home with her family, waiting expectantly for the arrival of her bridegroom, waiting, knowing that he was off preparing a place for her in his father's house. She may have looked on numerous times with envy as her friends or sisters were retrieved by their bridegroom to go off and live with them. But she would remain faithful. She would remain vigilant, waiting and watching for her groom to come down the street to take her home to be with him. The bridegroom would come, and he would continue working until the father's approved time. It was never up to the son to determine when the new addition was ready. Only the father knew. And when the father would give his approval, he would announce to his son, he would say, well done, it's time to get your bride. He would gather his friends and his family, and the bridegroom would travel unannounced through the streets of the city to retrieve his bride. As the men scurried through the narrow streets, the townspeople would follow the procession, and shouts would bellow from the highways and byways, behold, the bridegroom comes! Behold, he's here. Prepare the way for the groom. And excitement would fill the air on every street as every girl would wonder, is it my groom who has returned? Is my groom coming today? And then when the groom would knock on the door, the bride would know that her groom had come and he had kept his promise to get her. Church, this morning we serve and we worship a groom who will come. We worship a groom who will return, and there will be such worship and rejoicing that you can't even compare. So we are called to stay faithful because Jesus will come. Our groom will return, and that is who we serve, and that is who we worship. Let's stand, and let's worship him this morning.